The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, April 15th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Good to see you guys. If you got your Bibles, make your way to John chapter 20. That was free. John chapter 20. We are going to continue uh, in our series right now where we are just considering the implications or some of the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not so much that we could be increasingly convinced that it occurred, although that is essential as a follower of Christ, but that God might make us more excited that it happened. More excited that Jesus is alive. And what that means for us. So as you're making your way to John chapter 20, we'll start there this morning, but we won't stay there or end there. Let me ask you this question. How do you, and I don't mean the plural you, I mean the individual you, how do you measure your potential? You know, all day, every day, and in every situation we walk into, all of us in some way are trying to determine whether or not we have what it takes to do what's in front of us. We're always measuring potential, whether it's through a new assignment we get at work, whether it's a new game that we're competing in, we step onto the field, we're sizing up our opponents, we're measuring whether or not I can actually do what I'm being asked to do. All of us in nearly all times in some way are measuring our sense of potential. It's no different when we think about our lives as a disciple of Jesus. How do you measure your potential? to live a life to the glory of God and the good of those around you. When you read your Bible and and you come to a passage like 1 Peter 3, I'll just read it for you, where Peter says, finally, all of you. So he's talking to you. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, like that, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. How do you measure your potential? Assess your potential to live a life to the glory of God and the good of others. How should you measure your potential? What difference does the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead make in you answering that question? Does it at all? That's what we're going to consider together this morning. In John chapter 20, if you have been with us, you may be reminded of this, let me remind you of it, but John chapter 20 captures for us Jesus' first appearance to his disciples after his resurrection. It's the first Easter Sunday evening, and it can be said that this is Jesus' first message after the resurrection. And in his first message, Jesus promises to his disciples the gift of a new power. And this power that Jesus promises has everything to do with how you and I now, as his disciples, assess our potential. John chapter 20, let's pick it up in verse 19. We'll be reminded and then we'll continue forward. Let me turn my clock on. John chapter 20, verse 19. On the eve of that day, so this is the first Easter evening, the first day of the week, 
The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then verse 22. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. A gift of power for his disciples that utterly transforms and redefines their potential to live their life for the glory of God and the good of others. Now, it's a weird moment if you read it like a human. If you were with us last week, we talked about it for a minute, but Jesus is with his disciples and and he says this and he breathes, He, he exhales on them forcefully. Jesus was enacting, so to speak, the the fulfillment of a promise that was to come. You know, in 50 days from that moment, from 50 days from the time when Jesus was crucified, God's people would gather together to celebrate the festival of Pentecost. And God would fulfill the promise and pour out the Holy Spirit upon his disciples. And these disciples in this room on that night with Jesus would in fact experience that gift of power in them and for them. So I reminded you last week that every sermon has a context. Jesus was speaking to a particular group of people and had a particular message that was going that had a beginning and it's going to have a conclusion. So let's go to Acts chapter 2. I want you to see the conclusion as we begin to build the blocks to understand how his resurrection changes how we understand our potential. Acts chapter 2. We're now 50 days from the crucifixion of Jesus. The disciples are gathering with the rest of the Jews in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2 verse 1, it says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Most likely the same upper room that they were in the night that Jesus went to the cross. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And that sound filled the entire house where they were sitting. All right, so so read it like a human. We're all gathered together in the room, right? Here we are. We're talking, maybe eating. Maybe some are having a conversation over here in the corner. Maybe there's laughter over here. Maybe there's confusion. Maybe a disagreement over here in this little group. But we're doing whatever it is we're doing when we're all gathered. And out of nowhere, the sound of a gale force wind fills the room but nothing blows away. You're going to stop what you're doing just like this, aren't you? All your conversations are going to cease. Your attention has now been drawn to something else entirely. Not only does this sound, this hurricane sound fill the room, but yet nothing blow away. Verse 2 says, Our verse 3 says, divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. I'll be honest with you. I have no idea what a divided tongue of fire looks like. Somehow, this was Luke's best description of what was actually happening in that moment. But you can guarantee the attention of all of the disciples was now focused on what God was doing. You see, throughout the Old Testament, 
God would make his presence amongst his people known in a tangible way. And many times, if we were to go back and if we had the time to work through the Old Testament, God would make his presence with his people tangible through a mighty wind, through a wind. At other times, he would make his presence tangible with his people through fire. And it makes sense if you think about it. A mighty wind is irrepressibly powerful. And a fire is all-consuming and purifying. And whatever a, a mighty rushing wind encounters, whatever a consuming fire encounters, doesn't remain the same at the end. It changes them. And Luke says in verse 4 of Acts chapter 2, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues that the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus promised that first Easter Sunday evening when he breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But it was more than just the fulfillment of what Jesus said in that first Easter Sunday sermon about a power that was going to come. There was even more behind that. You see, there were some folk, if you keep looking around in Acts chapter 2, there were some people there that were, that were privy to this display, to this sound and, and to this, this sight of the tongues of fire. And they came to the wrong conclusion regarding what was actually happening. If you look down at verse 12 in chapter 2, Luke records that some were saying, what's this actually mean? Others were mocking, verse 13 says, and they were saying that these are all filled with new wine. And so Peter, had to be Peter, Peter stands up in the midst of the confusion as the sound of the wind has died down. I imagine that the, the dancing tongues of fire have maybe gone away. Everybody's trying to figure out what was actually happening. Peter stands up and delivers the first post-resurrection, post-Pentecost presentation of the gospel, the first sermon. And let me just say this to you. If you ever find yourself in a situation where you are going to proclaim the gospel, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're going to present a sermon or, or teach the, the gospel from God's word, if you ever have to start your presentation by convincing your audience that you're not drunk, you're already starting off on the wrong foot. But that's what Peter had to do. If you keep reading, Peter stood up and said, nobody here is drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. What you have seen is a long anticipated gift being given. What you've seen, what you've witnessed is a long anticipated promise of God being kept. What you've seen, what you've heard, it's actually a prophecy, spoken word of God being fulfilled. And, and Peter goes on and he quotes Joel chapter 2 to them. You see it in Acts 2 starting in verse 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even my male servants and my female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. You see, before Jesus said something to his disciples in the upper room that first Easter Sunday night, God had promised his people that a day was going to come when he would no longer place his spirit on a particular person at a particular time to accomplish a particular task. 
That's the way the Spirit of God would work in the Old Testament. If you were with us, you might remember going through the book of Judges. We would see it chapter after chapter after chapter. God would empower someone by his Spirit at a particular time for a particular purpose to accomplish a particular task. But God promised that a day was going to come when anyone and everyone who would call on the name of the Lord would indeed be filled by his Spirit. And so Peter stands up, and in the midst of this moment, he declares to everyone that's listening, what you have just seen is God keeping his promises. And as one commentator said on Acts 2, when the Spirit of God comes, people are changed. Mighty rushing winds, consuming fires, they don't leave things the same way. When the Spirit of God comes, people are changed. Timid disciples become bold witnesses to Jesus. Peter stands up and preaches the gospel, saying, you're the ones that crucified him. Go through the rest of Acts and hear the stories of of their imprisonment and their beatings. Ultimately, their martyrdom, fearful followers hiding in a room, now become bold witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. This writer said, racist Jews are reconciled to Gentiles. Gentiles become followers of God. This is a tremendous development. In those days, he said, equality and tolerance were not widely embraced virtues, but here God's spirit has come to all of God's people without respect to age, gender, or title. As you make your way through the rest of the New Testament, you begin to read and begin to see the ministry of the Holy Spirit in all of his glory, utterly redefining our potential as Jesus' disciples to live for his glory and the good of others. In fact, just a a cursory view, John, in chapter 3, he says that it's this very spirit that gives new life to dead sinners. Paul told the church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 5, you might remember this, that it's this very spirit that grows the fruit of holiness in your life. Paul told the church in Rome in Romans 8 that it's this very spirit that even in your darkest and most broken and vulnerable moments, he's the one in you that helps you to pray, to commune, to talk with God. John in John 16 says it's this very spirit that will convict people of sin and the coming judgment. It's this very spirit that guides us, that leads us in truth. Luke says in Acts 8 that it's this very spirit that enables us to proclaim, to bear witness to the gospel. Paul tells the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 12 that it's this very spirit that gives each and every one of God's people gifts for the use of building up and bringing to maturity the church, the people of God. It's this very spirit, this gift of power that God gives his people that utterly redefines the disciples of Jesus' potential to live, to mature, to commune, to confess, to walk, to proclaim, to serve to be God's faithful presence in the midst of a fallen world. Now, there are so many treasures in what I just ran through for us to mine. So many treasures for you to mine, thinking about the implications of this spirit given to you, redefining your potential to be the follower of Jesus that lives a life for the glory of God and the good of others. 
But this morning, rather than trying to sweep through all of those things and just bring them back in front of your eyes, I want to consider something a bit different. I want us to take the rest of our time this morning to consider the nature and the power of this spirit for our lives now and the redefining of our sense of potential. So to do that, I want you to flip back to John. We're going to go back to the upper room. Remember Jesus' promise that first Easter Sunday is in the context of a conversation he had been having before he went to the cross and is fulfilled that day on Pentecost when God pours out his spirit. So I want you to hear the front end of the context this morning. Go back to John chapter 13. That night that Jesus is going to go to the cross and he's gathered in that room with all of his disciples. He's going to prepare them for his departure. This is part of what he's doing. And in John 13, starting in verse 33, Jesus says, little children. Now, just stop there for a moment. I always get a kick out of Jesus calling this very grizzled and diverse group of men little children. I mean, these were fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. And Jesus looks at them and calls them little children. I always get a kick out of that, but that's a sidebar, all right? Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I say to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now read it like a human. If you heard Jesus that night say that to you, would you hear anything else he said for the next five minutes? You ever had one of those conversations? Someone lays some kind of big news on you in the midst of a conversation and they keep talking, but it's like, wah, 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 because you can't get past what they just said. They've given up everything to follow him. Livelihoods, friends, family, For three years, they've traveled around Galilee with this man. And now they're in Jerusalem together celebrating the Passover. And he says, I'm leaving. And where I'm going, you can't come. How would you have felt? Would you have been a little troubled? Well, in John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, let your hearts not be troubled. Well, how is that possible? Jesus, you're ignoring the the giant pink elephant in the middle of the room. You just said you're leaving. And we can't go with you. In verse 16 of John 14, Jesus says, I'm going to ask the Father. And he's going to give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, Jesus says something very curious right there. I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give you another helper. He'll be with you. Now, we need to understand the words that Jesus uses right here if we're going to catch the peculiarity of what he said. Some of your Bibles don't translate that helper. Some of your Bibles translate that comforter. Some of your Bibles translate that advocate. I actually think the word advocate is the most faithful translation of that particular word. An advocate, I'll just give you dictionary definitions. An advocate is someone who comes alongside of you, who is for you, who's by you, and who fearlessly speaks the truth to someone or something that has what you need. That's what an advocate is. Another definition says someone who takes a powerless person and who deals with the powers that be on their behalf, not from in front or from behind. 
but standing alongside of them and representing them. Jesus said, don't be troubled. Yes, I've been with you. Yes, I'm going to leave you, but don't let it trouble your hearts. I'm gonna ask the Father and he is gonna send another advocate. Another advocate implies that there's already been one. Jesus is talking here about what he's about to do later on that night. Later on that night when Jesus gives himself over to be crucified in our place for our sins, three days later when God raises him from the dead, Jesus assumes the role of our advocate before God. In fact, this same John who's recording this evening with the disciples writes a letter years later to the churches and in 1 John 2, 1, John says, my little children, I'm writing this so that you would not sin, but if you do sin, know this. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus was letting them in on what he was about to do and what he was about to become. Jesus is going to be the one who represents us before the Father. He's going to be the one who deals with the defilement of our sins. He's going to be the one who becomes the guarantee of our acceptance before God. He's going to be the one who stands before God the Father and says, look, here are my brothers and my sisters. These are the ones that I've died for. Have they lied? Yes. Have they been selfish? Yes. Have they been bitter? Yes. Have they failed to serve people? Yes. Have they failed to love you as they should? Yes. But I've paid. Your law says that the only way for these debts to be paid is through death and through blood. Well, here's my body and here's my blood. I have made full payment. And your justice says you can't take two payments for the same debt. So it's been paid. I lived in their place. I died in their place. I'm not asking you for mercy for them. I'm asking you for justice. Jesus was letting them in on who he was about to become for them when he goes to the cross and when God raises him from the dead. He is our advocate before the Father. In fact, to be a Christian is to say that I know that I will never be able to stand before God and the scrutiny of his justice being my own advocate. The only way that I will ever be able to stand before the righteous justice of God is knowing that Jesus is my advocate in my place. Jesus said, don't be troubled. I'm going to send another advocate. Another one. And then in John chapter 16, he says something else curious that's going to throw them off a little bit. In John 16, verses 6 through 7, Jesus says, Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Well, of course, they can't comprehend what's about to happen in a few hours. They can't comprehend the full extent of Jesus becoming their advocate before the Father in their place. All they can comprehend is that this man that we love, this man that we have served, this man that we have followed, this man that we are with right now said, I'm leaving and you can't go with me and I'm going to send someone else. And then in John 16, he says, I know that sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the advocate, the helper, will not come to you. But, but if I go, I'll, I'll send him to you. 
So put yourself in the room. What in the world could be better than having Jesus right there next to you? I mean, is that not the default that our hearts get to whenever we find ourselves caught in sin or wherever we find something in our hearts exposed? Well, if Jesus was really here, it wouldn't have been so difficult. We read the Gospels, we read the New Testament letters, and we go, well, it's not apples to apples. They had Jesus. He was right there with them. If they had a question, they could ask him. What could be better than having Jesus right there beside you? Well, how about having him within you every single day, all day, everywhere you go? That is the very thing that Jesus was promising. That is the very thing that God delivered. The celebration of Pentecost, that first day when he poured out his spirit. Listen to how intimately Jesus connects himself with his spirit in John 14. John 14, look at verse 16. Jesus says, I'm going to ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. So he's already assuming there's one, which is him, and he's about to take that place. I'm going to send you another to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But listen to what he says. Look at this. Watch the connection here. You know him, for he dwells, what's it say next? I can't hear you. What's it say next? With you. Who is dwelling with them? Jesus. You know this other advocate, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In other words, I'm with you right now in a very particular way, but I will be in you in a very particular way after I return to my Father and send you my Spirit. That's why Jesus goes on to say, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Don't be troubled. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I am going to come to you. Jesus so intimately sees himself connected and at one with God the Spirit. That Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson can say that having the Spirit is the equivalent, indeed the very mode, of having the incarnate, obedient, crucified, resurrected, and exalted Christ indwelling you so that you are united to him as he is united to the Father. You have him. Paul tries to help the church in Rome understand this because if we begin to actually see this and believe it, it changes everything about how we assess our potential as his disciples. In Romans chapter 8, when you start in verse 9, the apostle Paul, he says that you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Note that. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Listen to what Paul said. He said the spirit of God dwells in you. You have the spirit of Christ, 
and Christ dwells in you. This is the Trinitarian reality that exists in you as a follower of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of your heart. The Spirit is equally the Spirit of God the Father and the Spirit of God the Son, Jesus Christ. And Paul is trying to help the church understand that the Spirit communicates so much of Jesus that it's fitting to say that Jesus himself is present in you. In fact, Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth. His, his second letter that we have in the Bible, probably the fourth letter that at least we know he wrote to them. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 says, do you not realize this about yourself? So imagine he's talking to you right now. He says, do you not realize this about yourself? Jesus Christ is in you. Friends, this is the power. This is the measure of potential that you have as a Christian. This is now how you are to assess your potential to live a life to the glory of God and the good of others. Christ, by his spirit, your hope of glory alive in you. We need to make certain, though, before we go too much further, how this actually becomes a reality for you. How the living, resurrected Christ takes up residence in your heart, transforming your heart and redefining your potential. When Peter stood up that first Pentecost and preached that first gospel sermon, post-resurrection, post-pouring out of the Holy Spirit, in, in Acts chapter 2, let me read this to you. Whoop, Acts chapter 2. Let me get there. Peter sums up his sermon this way. Peter said to them, to everyone, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. For every person that turns away from their sin and from their own self-direction to follow Jesus, for everyone who repents, this Holy Spirit is given to anyone who trusts in Jesus for forgiveness and new life. For everyone who turns from their own guilt, from their own trust and their own sense of advocacy before God, who can admit before God, I have tried to be my own advocate before you, but there is no way that I could ever pay the debt that I owe for my sin. And by faith, I am believing that everything Jesus is for me is true, that he is my advocate. Peter says, for all who believe upon Jesus, you will be forgiven and you receive this spirit. It can be yours this morning. You can know that this very spirit, the resurrected Christ, the spirit of God has taken up residence in you. You can know that this morning. For everyone who repents of their sins and turns by faith in Jesus, you receive this spirit, an entirely new sense of potential. The risen Christ dwelling in you by his spirit is a guarantee of transformation unlike anything else. It is an utter redefinition of your potential to live a life for the glory of God and the good of others. If this is true about you, everything that I'm about to say here forward is true for you. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, you, you 
are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. This is a phrase that gets tossed around in every single corner of the Christian church. And if there's 150 people in this room, if I were to ask you what it means to be in the Spirit, I would get 250 different definitions. You've read it on a sticker, you've read it on a mug, you've read it in a book, you've thrown it around because it sounds good, but what in the world does it actually mean? Because Paul says, if you have by faith repented of your sins and placed your hope and trust in Jesus and received this Holy Spirit, you are now in this spirit. What does that mean? Because it changes everything about your potential. Well, quite literally, let me help you. Literally, it means the opposite of being in the flesh. It's not that tricky. You just have to read it in context. Paul says to be in the spirit is the opposite of being in the flesh. To be in the flesh means that your heart is under the pervasive influence of the flesh. You're not able or desiring to surrender to the truth of God's word and joy. Something else has sway over your heart. So to be in the spirit is the opposite. It means that your heart is under the pervasive influence, the pervasive control under the sway of the Spirit himself. To be in the Spirit means God has put you in his sway. He now holds the reins of your heart. You are now seated in his hands by his Spirit, not in the hands of your flesh. If he dwells in you, you're in him under his influence. And if you're in his sway, if you're in the Spirit, under the pervasive influence of the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that means he is alive and at work in you. He is working out in the new heart that he's given you new desires to bring, that bring joy to your heart. The things that God delights in, you begin to delight in. He's bringing to mind and to a heart in your life now a new desire to know God through his word, a new joy in surrendering to the truth of his word, a new delight in obedience to his word. He's working to conform your mind, to set your mind on things that are higher and much above, to conform your mind to the likeness of Christ. It means he's at work in you. You're in his sway. And if you're in his sway and he is the pervasive influence in your heart, you can rest assured that he is at work in you right now, conforming you into the family likeness. Now, I read something last week that I had never really considered before. Some of you may have thought of it. I just had never considered it before. But have you ever really thought about the fact that Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God who took on flesh and walked on this earth for 33 years, that Jesus is what human was meant to look like? Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus is the truest human to have walked the face of the earth, perfectly, joyfully dependent on the Father, perfectly humble, obedient, strong, kind, gracious, everything we were created to be, Jesus fulfilled 33 years, the perfect, truest human. And I say it that way because if you think about it, when we talk about being human today, it carries kind of a negative tone, doesn't it? When we do something wrong, I'm just human. It's only human for me to do that. 
To be human, the way we talk about it now, is to be inherently flawed, to be inherently broken. But Jesus is the truest reality of what human was meant to look like, which means that Christ in you now by his spirit is at work in you to make you more of what you were meant to be. He actually makes you more human. One writer said that Jesus who had compassion on the crowds and healed the sick, he's in you. The servant who washed the feet of his disciples, he's in you. The Jesus who was no respecter of social barriers came near to sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and Samaritans, he's in you. The Jesus who was raised to new life, he's in you. The risen Christ by his spirit is at work in you to make you more of who you were meant to be. This changes everything about how you assess your potential to live your life to the glory of God and the good of others. And not only that, there's there's one other thing. There's one other essential reality that is true for you if the risen Christ by his spirit is alive and at work in you. There's one other thing post-resurrection that is true of you that changes everything. If the risen Christ by his spirit is taking up residence in your heart, you need to understand that right now, today, tomorrow, and every day until he returns, the business of the spirit of God in you is to make much of Jesus for you. Period. You might be familiar with a man named J.I. Packer. He's a great British theologian. Packer wrote this. He said, the Holy Spirit is like a floodlight on Christ. When you see a floodlight, you don't see the floodlight. You only see what the floodlight is trying to show you. A floodlight throws something into relief so that you see the beauty of it. The Holy Spirit does not come and speak to you of himself. The Holy Spirit comes and says, look at Jesus. It's Jesus that he throws into relief in your heart. Look at the advocate. Packer says the day that you make Jesus your advocate in heaven, on the outside, so to speak, the Holy Spirit becomes your advocate on the inside. This is the role of the other advocate Jesus was talking about. The Spirit is constantly directing your heart towards the reality of Christ for you. Not just the truthfulness of Christ having walked on the earth, not just the truthfulness of Christ dying in your place for your sin and rising from the dead. He is constantly shining the floodlight, throwing the relief into your heart of who he is for you now. This is the primary, it's the main way The Spirit of God at work in you right now continues to mature you and change you and increase your heart's adoration of Jesus. He's your advocate on the inside. So for example, and your heart is starting to become increasingly taken over by bitterness, so to speak. I mean, that is one of the most nasty and pervasive weeds that can take root in our heart. It's like your neighbor's Bermuda grass that crosses the line. Once it gets over, you can't figure out a way to stop it, right? You think you've got it with Roundup, it shows up somewhere else. I'm from Tennessee, it's like kudzu. Once you put kudzu down somewhere, you can't control it anymore. You think you've got it, but it's just showing up everywhere. Bitterness is like that. 
If it takes root, it becomes one of the most pervasive weeds in our heart. So how does the ministry of the resurrected Christ by his spirit, our advocate on the inside, change that about us? Because we can't seem to get ourselves out of that pit, can we? I don't know a person in the room who has ever gotten themselves out of bitterness. How does the spirit of the resurrected Christ get us out of that consuming sense that takes over our heart and change us along the way? Well, to use Packer's picture, he shines into relief into our heart, the depth of our forgiveness in Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in you to help you to see, look, look at his hands. Look at his feet. Look at his side. Consider the mercy shown towards you in his death died for you. Consider his love shown towards you and the depth of his forgiveness of you. Look at how he's forgiven you. The floodlight of the advocate shines into our heart the relief of who Christ is for us, who he continues to be for us. And as he brings into our heart the sight of who Christ is for us, it begins to lay waste to the weeds of the bitterness that are threatening to consume us. All of a sudden, the the more that we're able on the inside to consider the depth of the forgiveness we've received from Christ and continue to receive from Christ, the, the less willing we really are to continue to be bitter and withhold forgiveness from someone else. And he's at work changing you. He's your advocate on the inside, talking to you about Jesus, your advocate in heaven. So Packer would go on to say it's the mark of the Holy Spirit to say, look at him. Look at Jesus. Don't look at me. See his glory. Listen to his word. Know his joy. Friends, what this means is that you are never, ever, ever without Jesus. That night in the upper room, their hearts were so troubled. Sorrow was consuming them because they could not yet understand what Jesus meant that he was going to be their advocate and another would come. All they could see is that he was going to leave. He wasn't going to be with them anymore. How were they going to keep going if Jesus wasn't going to be with him? What could be more precious than having Jesus right there with him? But he knew. The only thing better than having him right there with you side by side is having him inside of you forever. The presence of the spirit of the resurrected Christ alive and at work in you means there is never for a moment in your life going to be a situation where he's at any distance from you where he's gone from you, where he's away from you. Right before he ascended to the right hand of his father, he looked at his disciples and he said, understand this and know this, I am going to be with you until the end of the age. And now by his spirit, we know just how present he meant and just how close he will always be. Friends, is this how you assess your potential to live a life to the glory of God and the good of others? 
If you really give yourself a moment this week to stop and consider it, to allow the reality of the Spirit of God living in you, taking up residence in you, to move beyond some kind of Christian cliche, some kind of reality we know, we talk about, we throw it around, it comes up in songs sometimes, but actually consider it. The power towards you and at work in you. The redefined potential that is yours now to live as God calls us to live for our own joy and his glory. If you just consider it, I think you'll understand why the Apostle Paul was always praying and asking God to help the church better understand it. When he writes his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul begins to pray. He's only a third of the way through the first chapter. And he says, I never stop giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation and the knowledge of him. May he never stop shining the floodlight in your heart on who Jesus is for you. May you have the eyes of your heart enlightened that you would know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards you who believe. Friends, are you willing to ask God to help you better know? Not just in your mind, not just a theological box to tick off, but to know the reality in your heart of the immeasurable greatness of his power towards you. The power that's measured by the raising of his son from the dead and the seating of Jesus at the right hand of the Father in power and glory over all things. Friends, that is the power at work for your joy and God's glory in your heart. Friends, is this how you assess your potential? to live a life to the glory of God and the good of others. Paul wants you to. Jesus wants you to. We're gonna need God's help day in and day out for that to be a reality for us. May it be. As we prepare to respond this morning, I'm simply gonna let Paul close us. I'm gonna let Paul take us to a moment of reflection. We're gonna give you a couple of minutes to reflect on God's word and what you've heard this morning. We're gonna consider him it's a time for, for you if you have never surrendered to Jesus, never repented of your sins, never claimed him as your advocate before God. You can do that this very morning and know the reality of his spirit is alive and at work in you. We're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect. Then we're going to respond by receiving communion, by singing, and by, be, by being sent out. But let's let Paul take us to reflection. Paul said to him, to God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. You find yourself in a situation right now that you can't figure a way out of, or a hurt you can't seem to get around, a problem you can't seem to get an answer to. Friend, he is able to do more than all you could ever dream up, ask, or even begin to think. And the measure of his capacity to do more than you could ever begin to think, Paul says, is all according to the power that's at work within you. That's the measure of the power.
the new sense of potential that's ours by grace. So Paul says to him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.